Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Happy February, everyone, and welcome once again to the State of Distressed Debt edition of the Fick Focus podcast series, where, as always, we focus on the happenings in the uh, U.S. stress-distressed credit and bankruptcy markets, uh, predominantly, of course, in the U.S. I am, as ever, your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me, once again, senior distressed credit analyst uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence, Phil Rendell. Today is uh, February 4th. Welcome once again. So, Phil, you know, interesting times, right? I mean, so we just came off of sort of a January to remember, uh, you know, across markets overall. You know, certainly investment grade markets got really stung down a little bit over uh, 3%, uh, give or take. U.S. high yield markets themselves uh, also down 2% plus, uh, you know, for the month. But it, it wasn't uh, full-blown pain everywhere. And, and in fact, it seems like maybe uh, distressed markets uh, fared a little bit better. You know, what, what were your takeaways from uh, January? I agree, Noel. It was really interesting. Um, you know, typically I, I look at all my distressed credits and dive deep into them. And then, and then at the end of every month, I pick my head up and like say, okay, what the heck happened in the world? And when I looked and, you know, first place I go is my distressed debt supply. And, you know, did it increase? Did it decrease? What's it look like? And it was unchanged in the month. Uh, you know, the distress ratio for the ICE high yield index is still 2%. Um, you know, so that's roughly $31 billion of $1.5 trillion of uh, debt there that is actually trading at distressed levels. And, but, you know, I... I don't ignore all the red flashes on my screen and, uh, you know, stocks were down 5% in January. Uh, you know, the treasury, the 10 year backed up 25 basis points. And so a lot of that just sort of strikes me as, you know, all right, things are moving around a lot, but, you know, corporate defaults is not one area where investors are really worried. And, uh, you know, I thought that was uh, I thought that was an interesting dichotomy that you had a little bit of a panic, you had equity volatility, but you know, in the distress market, you really didn't see it. Yeah, and I think that's sort of a, you know, it, it's kind of a, an interesting phenomenon, right? Because it's very infrequent uh, to see such a big drawdown, and I think uh, the total number, you know, for high yield more broadly speaking, was like two seventy or two seventy three, two point seven three percent in terms of the drawdown for January. Uh, and it's very unusual to see sort of that magnitude of a move, but to see the the pie inverted in the sense that it was really double B's that took the brunt of it uh, a little bit in the in the single B category and, and triple C's, while not entirely immune, uh, certainly fared best. And it's, you know, to the point that you just raised, I mean, that 10 year Treasury backup really, you know, hit into sort of the duration oriented assets, which obviously congregate mostly in the double B sphere. Um, that said, I mean, one of the things that, you know, from the high yield market side that I thought was interesting is that was definitely the tail, you know, weeks one, two and three for the month. And then it just seemed at least in the last week of January, the outflows from the asset class really started to catch up a little bit with the sector. And you saw that uh, a little bit of a pivot in terms of, you know, the, the rotation going from purely just a duration 
play to to being a little bit more oriented towards the beta piece as well. And we did get some catch down in triple C's and, and lower quality assets at the end of the month. So I, I guess with that in mind, you know, the question that I pose to you is, you know, obviously the, the early part of February has been a little bit more robust, you know, big risk on rally, at least in the initial days, um, you know, not so much in the last day or so. But, you know, do you worry about just even how that beta play uh, may sort of evolve if, you know, even though people started out by just sort of trying to run away from duration, ultimately that just feeds into all spread product? Or is this, as we've talked about in the past, maybe a place where distress stays somewhat immune just because it's still really pricing on points as opposed to percentages, right? People aren't owning it for carry, they're owning it for total return. Does that uh, you know, does that kind of keep it insulated? Or do you think if the damage gets big enough in sort of more of the carry areas of high yield that we see some impact on your space? Yeah, yeah. so th- exactly. Th- those are the the things I'm thinking about right now. And, you know, it, w- when we take a look at the things, you know, the, the, the backup in the treasuries and, and, and equities going down, um, you know, the rate backup obviously hurts high yield investors directly, um, you know, not necessarily through the credit spread, but through the Treasury move. Um, the inflation obviously also hurts. So to the extent that inflation fears continue to uh, run around the market, uh, that, that's, that, that hurts any uh, fixed income instrument. And then equity valuations coming down, um, you know, there's nothing corporate credit investors love than, you know, a big fat equity cushion. And to the extent that those shrink, that would impact things. But when you're on the distress side of uh, credit, um, you don't usually have equity cushions, except for the notable exceptions of maybe meme stocks. Uh, You know, AMC actually took advantage of a big equity cushion. And uh, so you see that occasionally. Um, But, you know, all these factors, uh, you know, are they are they going to lead for some of these distress credits that we already have? Are we going to see more distress credits because of it? And you know, I I, I think you you potentially see problems where companies can't pass through inflationary uh, cost pressures and that sort of thing. But um, generally speaking, with the economy turning and you know these these you know liabilities being fixed, I, I generally think it's probably going to be. Uh, I, I don't see necessarily. Uh, a systemic sort of like, you know, we're going to see distress, um, you know, just from just from sort of uh, these things working their way and pushing high yield generally to a so, higher credit. So we're spread. still looking for somewhat of a, a favorable credit backdrop in your eyes. I, um, you know, one of the things I guess that, uh, you know, also, I guess, I think a little bit more about these days, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts on, um, you know, it's, you know, I, I, I hate to sort of yield to sort of proximity bias in the latest data points and that sort of thing, because I think that's sort of a, a rapid path to nowhere. But, you know, one of the things that does strike me, I think, over the last couple of months of macroeconomic data is that, you know, we've we've gotten sort of a, a tilt, you know, a flattening out or a tilt lower in a lot of these macroeconomic indicators. Now, how much of that is just sort of supply disruption? Uh, how much of that is just, uh, you know, the cessation of, you know, government handouts and stuff like that. And sort of, you know, maybe we, we're still sort of fumbling and trying to find our way in terms of what's the, the real economy look like right now. 
Um, but I think, you know, it kind of juxtaposed against an inflationary backdrop that, that looks reasonably persistent, uh, at least over the intermediate term. Right. I, I think the the word that sort of starts to echo a little bit more frequently in my head these days that worries me most is stagflation. Now, obviously, premature to make a big call on something like that. Uh, but, you know, if you're looking for sort of the, the death of credit uh, to a certain degree, you know, that would to me be sort of a really problematic outcome because obviously you'd still have uh, the inflationary impulse and presume that the Fed would at least respond to some degree, uh, you know, over and above what's already been sort of implied. Uh, but then you also would have the dynamic of, you know, spread widening to boot and a, a Fed backstop or Fed put, right, that sort of has to stay sidelined because of the other macro indicators. Do you think much about, you know, if we ended up sort of in a, you know, sort of a stagflationary sort of end game, uh, you know, at least over the intermediate term, does that hit your space at all uh, as well? Or, or is, again, it kind of the mechanics of it just sort of leave it uh, somewhat aside from that sort of dynamic? I think that would be really bad for companies and, and consequently credits. Um, stagflation is horrible, you know, to the extent that your revenue is not really going up or it's not keeping pace with the, uh, you know, the inflationary cost pressure. Um, now, I view it, and so my view is kind of broken up into two sort of views, and one is and. Probably my patience is is being shaped by how I'm weighing a lot of the technical things that I'm looking at. Seasonally, we're a strong credit market through May. That's historically been true. I don't want to like kind of use that as my, you know, I'm always betting on that uh, factor. But I, I, I think that's something to consider. Um, you know, and then I've also done a work, a lot of work, you know, around these credit cycles and, you know, the timing and how long they last. And the timing of this cycle also seems like, you know, we're still going to probably hit a distress supply low, uh, you know, sometime between three and nine months. Now, the sample set there is really small. I'm looking at back at four credit cycles. So I'm not going to put a lot of weight into that. But just... The fact that we've been in this credit cycle, this upturn for some time, I I, I think that's pushing me towards a more patient uh, view of things. And so, you know, I, I look at that through the seasonals and I'm like, I think we're probably going to be safe through May. But then I can also see trouble start showing its, uh, you know, rearing its head, um, you know. And, and one of the things that I also look at is... Uh, and I, I guess my big risk is that this is going to happen faster and sooner than, you know, the, the trouble starts, the stagflation or just uh, credit worries start uh, taking on a life of their own. And those are the real risks that we, we potentially might run. One of the things that I thought was interesting was uh, January is such a strong month for distressed. Only seven Januarys of the 25 that, you know, are in this distressed index were negative. Um, and, you know, February is also a strong month, only 9% or nine, nine Februarys are negative, which is about 36%. Um, and so you think, oh, February is seasonally strong, but 
actually out of the seven negative Januaries, the four Februaries were negative. So about, you know, so what's interesting there is that you actually have uh, over half the uh, Februaries follow. So there's a lot of autocorrelation there, you know, the, like the, the, the recent trend of January really speaks a lot towards February. So that 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 gives me some nervous that that maybe maybe we're going to hit trouble sooner than uh, seasonals would suggest. So these are these are like different things I'm 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 worrying about and you know kind of fighting with each other. Um, and then you know that kind of plays into are we if the other wild card here is systemic risk. You know if we saw crypto assets, uh, you know, and equities, you know, sharp moves down, start leading, leading to margin calls and, uh, you know, fund liquidations and that sort of thing. Um, you know, that's, it's, it's, it's far out of the imagination right now, even though, you know, we just saw Facebook lose 200 billion overnight. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, it's, th- these are, these are the things that, you know, it, it's not necessarily just the corporate balance sheets that matter, um, you know, really distressed is, is driven by, you know, pricing of securities. And to the extent that, you know, the marketplace in general is very levered right now, uh, you know, you could see those kind of sales. And, you know, honestly, those are the best distressed opportunities when the market panics and but fundamentals are actually relatively uh, favorable. Yeah, we're, we're certainly still, even with, you know, sort of the January selling across high yield more broadly, we're certainly a long way uh, from panic, not least of which because of so much of it or the pricing pressure was, was you know, duration related as opposed to risk off or, you know, material spread writing or repricing of risk. I mean, so even now, right, I mean, spread across high yield while wider, you know, over the long spell of time, it's <laughs> still... No matter how you want to slice it, duration adjusted, rating adjusted, whatever else, you're still at the very tight end of the historic range sons, you know, the the 07 lows or or the more recent sort of drawdowns or, or not drawdowns, but the, the bottoming out that we saw, you know, last year. So if you exclude sort of the hyper lows, you know, you're you're at the very tight end of historic norms. So still a pretty what I would say supportive broader environment, even if, you know, the, the tone of, you know, price action feels a little bit worse. I think the other probably part to sort of be cognizant of is even while the primary market for high yield corporates is, is, you know, ebbed off a little bit, came in kind of soft in January. And, and it wouldn't surprise me if we see that trend for much of the year, you know, the loan market is on fire, right? So anything that's not getting funded in corporates, it's getting funded in loans, which is sort of the expectation coming in the year. Anyhow, just given where inflation is and people wanting to naturally hedge uh, with more floating rate instruments and that sort of thing. So, you know, we're seeing some of that. So funding markets remain, you know, reasonably robust. That said, you mentioned something that did sort of pique my interest and I guess sort of does, you know, perk up my ears or set my antenna up a little bit. Right. When you see some of the the price action that you see in a name like a Facebook or like we saw earlier in Netflix, when these companies are missing. Right. These aren't, you know, eight and 10 percent corrections. They're, you know, they're big size corrections, which tells me or or at least to me kind of makes me aware of and, and sort of cognizant of, you know, sort of the sentiment in play in the market at this point in time. And so that if we do get a flip 
in high yield, which we both know is sort of a notoriously on or off switch kind of a market, right? If, exactly. if people suddenly decide off switch, then it can, you know, it can get kind of problematic in a hurry. Uh, you know, and one of the things that I think sort of, I guess, you know, I monitor on that basis too is, you know, one of the big things that obviously aided the asset class more broadly speaking, especially even into distressed, right? Um, last year was you just couldn't get yield anywhere else. But now with rates moving higher globally and pushing, you know, higher quality assets wider and higher in terms of yield terms, right? At some point you start to do sort of the, the risk adjusted return math and go, maybe it pays to move up spectrum. Maybe I'm not getting comp to be down here in this tranche, right? Um, I don't know that we're there yet, uh, but, you know, I think it's something to stay mindful of, or at least that I try to stay mindful of, you know, as I'm looking at, you know, sort of across the spectrum. But, you know, it, it is, you know, it's going to be certainly an interesting climate, uh, you know, to see sort of how it plays out if it's, you know, just a little bit of a bump in the night, and then we sort of return to the natural course of where things have been going. Or, you know, do you get something that's a little bit more fundamentally uh, dislocating? But let's maybe pivot uh, a little bit into sort of the distress space, more specifically in terms of, you know, specific names. And I know, you know, maybe not a lot to talk about because it's sort of niche and sort of office in Europe and flying some random planes that maybe not a lot of people care about. But, I mean, it was one of the few bankruptcies that we've seen of late. So, so any update in terms of what's going on in, in Nordic? Well, actually, Nordic uh, Aviation Capital just had uh, their dip approved today. So congrats to them. It wasn't a proposed, so that, that's not – I don't think that surprises anyone. But um, that was small small relative size, $175 million. Um, you know, and, and you know, what, what, what's, what's interesting and fascinating about that bankruptcy is that they have – all of their debt is – virtually all of their debt is secured. And not only secured, but it's not, you know, ambiguous collateral like, you know, oh, just on the cash flow, the intangibles or anything. You've got hard metal. You've got air, aircraft and the aircraft, you know, has a distinct value. Uh, you know, people can there's, you know, a number of aviation appraisal companies that like routinely uh, value all of their fleet. Um, and so. Everyone has a good idea, at least on an appraisal valuation, not necessarily where that actually, you know, translates monetarily if they actually are in the market selling it. But um, all those decisions, you know, so, so one person's collateral might be good. One person's might be horrible. And, and so, um, you know, what Kirkland and Ellis and the Debtors Council at Northern at Nordic Aviation Capital did was, you know, they're coming up with a myriad of solutions for each of these uh, different lenders and they're negotiating and, and they, they filed the disclosure statement. There's not much detail there in terms of recoveries and, you know, projections and, and, uh, and valuation. But um, it's, it's very clear that, you know, they're reorganizing, reorganizing around, um, you know, the, the kind of the biggest debt stacks, um, and, and so there's going to be the, the primary reorganized. Uh, some of the uh, lenders are potentially selling their aircraft to someone else and or doing another standalone. And then there's, you know, 
still some aircraft lenders that they're still negotiating with. And, you know, surely, but, you know, slowly but surely they're, they're, they're getting through, uh, you know, all the lenders and getting them on board with the plan. Um, you know, cause I, I think one of the things that makes negotiations hard is when there's a wide, uh, disparity in views of valuation and, you know, what something might be worth. And in this case, it's an aircraft and, you know, the lenders, they're not even necessarily thinking about it, you know, restructuring and trying to do anything with it. They, they kind of know their value. Um, and then you have a company that's willing to reject it. So, um, there's, there's less uncertainty around the, the valuations here. Uh, cause it's most of the lenders are, we're really basically counting on the metal to provide their recovery, not a going concern. And, uh, and that, that's certainly the case here. So, uh, you know, the reorganizing. Well, if we get enough people to pool together here, we can maybe start a BI airline, start with a single turbo prop and. Well, we can have George Ferguson lead it. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So, and, <laughs> and so for those, uh, listening in and not in the know, George Ferguson is our, senior aerospace analyst on the equity side and uh he would probably love that i don't know if he knows how to actually fly a plane but he knows a lot about planes so uh that would be yeah I, yeah he would definitely be our ambassador uh, it's very true um so I, anyway th- th- that's proceeding along i i, I think i was thinking I think they're they're going to be pretty close to their schedule, and I, I think that's calling for like a second quarter exit. So that's all right. So a relatively quick turnaround, which sort of makes sense given uh, you know the nature of the company as you mentioned. So maybe maybe one that's a little bit more um, a little more action packed, I guess, and maybe a little bit more germane to a domestic audience here in the U.S. Um, Diamond Sports. Uh, it seems like we got some activity there that's maybe worth talking about. So. Why don't you catch us up on on sort of the the latest and greatest with our our friends in the RSN? Sure, uh, Diamond Sports Group. It's a you know uh, uh, if you think of Sinclair Broadcast Group, it's really that they've got two uh, silos. Uh, one is the broadcast television group, and that's you know all of that that's trading near par, and uh, you know that's that's the legacy company. Um, Diamond Sports Group, they purchased, I believe it was in 2019. Uh, I think that closed in the third quarter then. And that's being treated almost like a separate company that's just being run by Di- uh, under, under Sinclair. Um, and it came with uh, almost 9 to $10 billion of debt uh, in, in when they purchased the uh, all the assets from Disney uh, in a in a, a sale that was done for antitrust reasons, um, and uh, since then <laughs> you've seen the regional sports networks uh, cash flow uh, disappoint dramatically. The, you're talking about a entity that was making a one and a half billion dollars of EBITDA, and I think we haven't seen the fourth quarter numbers, but, um, you know, they were targeting somewhere around $500 million for the end of 2021. So it's been a, and the revenue streams are primarily from what is it advertising? Is it fees? Is it? Yeah, no, they did. So the revenue streams for the regional sports networks and I, there's about 15 of them. 
um, organized around the rights to broadcast uh, 45 teams, roughly split evenly between the NHL, NBA, and Major League Baseball. Um, and, you know, th that provides the content for these 15 channels. And uh, the revenue streams, there's uh, they get paid by um, cable companies and other vir virtual, uh, you know, providers o over the top. Uh, uh, like rebroadcasting know. rights or whatever. Yeah, MVPDs, they call them uh, multi-video channel providers. or I, I, I don't know what it stands for, but... Um, <laughs> Or I, I forget what it stands for. Um, but basically, uh, there's carriage fees, and then there's also advertising fees. So those are the two big revenue streams, with carriage being more important. Um, since 2019, they've seen some significant folks say, we don't need to carry the RSNs anymore, specifically. Uh, Dish did that to them. Uh, YouTube did that to them. And then... Uh, I think Hulu Live Sports also dropped them. So you you had uh, so, so a lot of the, a lot of the low cost providers of uh, of um, video um, of, of programming uh, walked away, and so um, where the bulk of their revenue comes from are the Comcast, the Charters of the world, and and so. Whenever one of these negotiations come up, especially in these days when the RSNs are concerned, it, it's it's a concern. So um, one of the things that uh, we want to talk about is uh, so finally the, the bonds have been trading down for a while, um, and they announced a transaction support agreement. And we've talked about this one a number of times. Uh, recall that Sinclair was actually pitting. It's secured its Diamond Sports Group secured lenders against its Diamond Sports Group unsecured note holders in in coming up with six hundred million dollars to fund uh, the investments and and really operating losses that they might incur in building out their uh, direct to consumer product. And uh, what what this deal does is uh, it, it it really is it, it it's it's an interesting deal because. It, it's you get to see where basically uh, each of these stakeholders uh, drew the line. Um, it came with the support of 49.7% of the term loans, 53.7% of uh, the five and three eighths first lien notes. And then there was a small $31 million tranche of 12 and three quarters notes. Uh, that was really just a residual from a failed exchange offer in 2020. And they only have 16.7% of that, but those numbers don't really bother me. But net-net, uh, they have the support of $3.25 billion of $6.2 billion of uh, secured debt in, in, at Diamond Sports Group. So it, it's a sizable commitment they still need $750 million more to reach their thresholds. And the thresholds are the notes and dentures in order to uh, provide liens that are senior to them. They need the support of two thirds of uh, the secured notes and they need over half of the term loans. So um, like we said, the, the transaction is really about funding and building the rollout of the direct consumer product and when we say that, we're really talking about an app that allows people, we recall these are regional sports networks. So 
it, it's really covering the 80% of viewership that resides within a certain uh, radius of each of the sports franchises. And those are the rights that uh, were actually sold to these stations. So it's, it's not national rights. And so it's, 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 uh, it, it kind of has a limited advertising um, interest because, you know, for national advertisers, that's not necessarily the, the, the ideal partner. Um, so, so they really count on a lot of local sponsorship. So now what they're looking at is creating an app where this app would be available to people in those areas. Um, and so the $600 million would be priming debt. Um, it would be ahead of the first lien. So they're effectively priming themselves. Um, and what was nice is that the first lien lenders under this deal, um, they can consent, not provide any of the new money, and actually roll their paper at par into a new uh, super priority second lien uh, note with the same maturity. So the it's really not a big cost. The cost is you're effectively allowing the priming, but you're getting the benefit, at least on a second priority basis, um, of the new investments and, and the new product. Uh, it, you're, you're also moving into paper that has tighter covenants. And so the company estimated that all, all when it's all you know done, this tranche could be as large as almost $7 billion. So um, if you choose to be a holdout and not go along with this deal, you're, you will become a third lien uh, lender and you're, you only start significantly back. Uh, I think it's probably about, you know, behind that $7 billion of debt. So it's a, I, I my feeling is for the first lien folks they're gonna they're gonna take this deal and and be happy about it. Um, timing the consents are necessary by March seventh. It's supposed to close by March thirty first. Um, there are you know the other things that you look for in a deal whenever someone provides new money. Um, you know typically they'll they might create a reserve so that they can have better economics. There was no reserve here. This seemed like a pretty fair deal to uh to the general syndicated uh first lien group because anyone can participate in the new money the only thing that backstop investors did take was a four percent backstop premium which you know that's not unheard of given that they're they're saying it under you know any market conditions as long as you can close on the terms of the transaction support agreement um will be there for the 600 million if nobody else steps up so, so that's how the first lien's treated. So, if the folks who don't go along will be put into third lien, what about the unsecured notes? There's about 1.7 billion of those. The unsecured notes. Indeed. What about them? What about the unsecured? The ones trading at 27 cents on the dollar. <laughs> tender hooks. I'm on tender hooks. <laughs> um, so, nothing happens with them. They're left alone. So, so, you know. What Very anticlimactic. You gotta, you gotta sell me here. Yeah. So you, 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 you presented it big, and then you sold me nothing. <laughs> All right. Nothing happens with the insecures. All right. Go ahead. Sorry. So, 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 what do we think of the? So, so what I did in the the research that I put out was from each one of these stakeholders' perspectives. How does this deal really look? And so the first lanes, I I went over that. I I thought it was a great deal. Um, you know, look, they they can be disappointed because the one thing you saw here was that 
Sinclair, the parent, they didn't really provide much to uh, Diamond Sports Group. They didn't they didn't input much. They didn't they 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 didn't give it a whole lot of uh, value. Um, and you know there there were some concessions. One of the concessions was uh, management fees. They're capping them at a billion dollars now. Um, and the the other concession is that there uh, is going to be uh, uh, new board co- governance. Uh, the term lenders are going to be able to choose a restructuring independent director to sit there. The majority of the board at Diamond Sports Group is going to be independent. But those are cosmetic and you know somewhat um, you know future oriented uh, uh, you know concessions on the management fees. Uh, you know it, it's not. You know, look, Sinclair got uh, Bally warrants that could be t- potentially worth, you know, half a billion dollars. Um, there was no, there was no cash infusion here. There was no parent guarantee. So, so Sinclair really kind of got away with getting a lot or getting an extension of the current situation without really making a significant commitment. Um, and that kind of gives away the punchline for the shareholders, which I was going to touch on last. But basically, it's a good deal from the shareholders' perspective, except to the extent that this is not a comprehensive solution. But we'll go back to the right, first. So you, you still have a bankruptcy remote entity, and you still have sort of the optionality if this thing can dig out of its hole, right? Yeah, and even it, it, I, I would I would argue it's not even really bankruptcy remote because there's been a lot of transactions here that I guarantee you have seen if. Diamond Sports went in, there would be some claims against Sinclair from either brought by derivatively by the lenders or, or by the company itself. Like fraudulent conveyance or exactly. where, where fraudulent sort of, conveyance, yep. the, the, those sort of things. Um, so, so basically the first lien, great deal, you know, considering this is what you would expect if this was a standalone restructuring for Diamond Sports Group. Um, so from the unsecured notes perspective, they're trading at 27 cents. The company now has a billion dollars of cash. They're going to continue paying your coupon. <laughs> so that that in itself is not bad. Um, there's no... And what's, for, and what's the coupon on the unsecureds? Uh, well, it's six and seven eighths. So... All right. So, so I mean, yeah, trading I mean, that's at a pretty material, you know, in a total return terms, right? I mean, uh, basically... Not on a non-present value basis or just on a gross basis, right? You're like four years right. <laughs> before you. So that's not the, not the worst. Um, and and now I, I discussed, uh, you know, what the deal looked like. Um, there's a part two coming. And that's where I think they're going to play games with the unsecured note holders. Um, because they created baskets under the terms of the transaction where um, if if less than 85% of the first lien debt actually supports the deal, which I don't see happening, I actually seeing it well in excess of 85%. But if there is some, if it's under that 85%, um, that, that super priority second lien debt basket, they can offer unsecured notes at like, call it up to 60 cents on the dollar. Um, that paper, um, if you can get that kind of discount. So in other words, unsecured note holders would be able to exchange at 60 cents on the dollar into um, the same paper that a consenting first lien holder might uh, get. And so, 
you know, that's that's a that could be available to them only if less than eighty five percent of the first lien debt um, actually ex- uh, actually consents oh. and moves up. Given the liquidity position, I mean, I don't know if there's like, is there anything in sort of in the indentures that precludes them from, or, or I guess from the priority paper, maybe there are restrictions in terms of buying in some of that debt that's at such a steep discount. Maybe there's something in the first liens that says no can do, but why wouldn't you, if you can, 26 cents on the dollar, I guess the coupon's not overly ridiculous here, but why wouldn't you try to nibble away at that? Right. So so we have the transaction support agreement. They're trying to seek these consents that would certainly allow them to do is all the things that they want them to do. And so that's why they're capping them. They're saying, like, look, if we get this, if we get two thirds support in the notes, secured notes, and we get over half of the term loan, then we're, we can go out. And this is this is part of the term sheet. And we can go out and use either that basket of the second lien or unlimited amounts of the third lane to chase down the unsecured notes at discounts. And that is that is a weapon that the secured lenders are effectively given, giving the company against the unsecured note holders. And this is critical for the shareholders because they're really just focused on the discount. They really want to like have less debt, less of a hurdle to get over so that they can, you know, get more equity value. Um, if this is all a success and, you know, one of the things that I keep harping on is like, um, and you know, maybe this is a good time to segue into what do all the franchises think the 45 company, the 45, you know, sports teams that get paid their, their rights fees, um, from Sinclair, uh, you know, they thought they had Fox as a customer. They thought, you know, okay, Fox sold to Disney. They had Disney as a customer. These are all big multi-billion dollar, you know, enterprises that it, it makes their, you know, these payments seem, I, I wouldn't ever call them small. More but, predictable. Uh, yeah, <laughs> predictable and, and just less of a credit problem. Uh, now that they have this, uh, you know, Diamond Sports Group, which has $10 billion of debt, it, it's, a, it's a problem credit. They have unsecured notes trading at 27 cents on the dollar. And a parent company that treats Diamond Sports Group like it's the proverbial redheaded stepchild, you know, it's it's just not a great position to be in if you're with these franchises. And but, so, but is there? I mean, I guess the question there would be right because presumptively part of the problem for Diamond here is that the the payment streams on that side of it are sort of at a, at a rate that doesn't really exist in the market right now, right? So if I'm Team X and I'm getting the stream, even despite the uncertainty, right, is that a stream of revenue that they can replicate elsewhere? Or is it, you know, this was a, a period in time in which everybody was so hungry for content, particularly sports related content, that they bid these things up or or maybe they can recreate it. I don't know. Do you have any sense in terms of whether part of the problem is just that diamonds sort of paying more than what they're getting? I think that's one of the questions that's making a lot of people scratch their head on uh, on Diamond Sports Group because uh, you do have big technology companies, you do have big media conglomerates that have paid enormous amounts for sports rights, and it is unique content. And so, you know, beauty is in the by the eye of the beholder. And yes, it, it, trying to make money 
just from, you know, like through carriage and advertising um, is a difficult proposition. Uh, you know, one thing that this this is a uh, this this group of, you know, 45 teams and 15 channels, it's 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 got good scale. And, you know, they, they certainly, you know, if, if Comcast or one of the big cable companies was to push them away at this point, that's that's a difficult sell to their customers because a lot of people subscribe to Comcast because it provides them, you know, uh, access to these sports teams. And, you know, so they, they run the risk of higher churn if they don't have that content. So um, it's, uh, that's a long way of saying, I don't know. And, yeah. and it, it, you I know, because I guess the other question that kind of comes up in, in my mind too, sort of related to the same thing that if you do have these other parties and obviously, you know, there's been a lot written about, you know, Amazon steals with the NFL, et cetera. Right. If you do have these channels that are obviously trying to push their, you know, their subscriber based streaming services or whatever else, you know, presumptively, right. If, if Disney bought them and then Sinclair slash Diamond bought them from Disney, right? Presumptively, there's another step in the ladder there where maybe you're getting something closer to premium value where you've got a company like an Amazon or somebody else that can afford maybe not. Well, certainly they can afford a loss leader, but, you know, whether they'd be willing to to suffer a loss leader is a different thing. But you have, you know, certainly players in the marketplace that have the capital and the wherewithal to say, we don't need this to be profitable because we're not measuring it in and of itself like Diamond needs to do, right? They're measuring it more as a function of stickiness, right? Exactly. Is it going to bring people to my Netflix or my Prime or my whatever subscriber service and keep them there? That's right. I, I, even today, I, I, I think uh, you, we saw that uh, the BT, British Delt Telecom, sold some soccer uh, entertainment assets in the UK to, uh, or they're working on a joint venture with Discovery, which is going to own HBO Max and the Warner Media assets. Uh, you know, if everything works out right in the first or second quarter this year, so this content can be extremely. You know, it, it, it's interesting if you go about a strategic exercise about selling this. You, you know, you might get a very. It only takes one, right? And you might get mm -hmm. a pretty print, but. Um, it, on a straight, like free cash flow, um, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough slog and, and that's what they've been restructuring around and, you know, that, you know, and, and so that's what they're hoping to, you know, effectively scare the unsecured notes when they tell them, you know, oh, we'll give you 50 cents and we'll give you a third lien and, and then we're going to strip the unsecured notes of all its credit protection so that you're basically left with <laughs> just your maturity and interest. Yeah. Well, you know, there is one solution that we haven't talked about, and that would be uh, pulling in the uh, Bloomberg Intelligence Fic Focus podcast series uh, into their uh, distribution stream. I think that would be a, a coup uh, for them. But, you know, in lieu of that, particularly the state of distress, um, in lieu of that, any sort of last thoughts on, on our friends at Diamond? I think I, I want to stay sort of mindful of time for our podcast listeners here. And I think we had a nice sort of robust conversation in terms of sort of the market backdrop here. But any last thoughts on Diamond before we we bid our, our listeners adieu? No, I mean, more to come. Obviously, it's going to be pretty exciting. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I think there's a lot of room here for creative solutions and uh 
but you know, I, I think this was a an excellent start. And you know, to sum it up, it's it's like shareholders didn't have to put much out. Um, the leagues, it's it's a band aid. This is certainly not what anyone would call a comprehensive solution. Um, but so so more to come. <laughs> all right. So with that, uh, thank you all, dear listeners. Uh, and if you're looking for any of Phil or my stuff, you can certainly find it on the Bloomberg Terminal. Phil Brendel under either his name or the BI space D-I-S-T dashboard, that's BI distressed, or my stuff under uh, my name, obviously, uh, or the BI S-T-R-T or BI strategy dashboard. Uh, and other than that, uh, we wish everybody a, a safe and prosperous February, and we look uh, forward to catching back up with you in March. Take Thanks, care. Thanks, Noel. Thanks, everyone.